be being alone, unique, uh, personally, with a desire to create for the creation of the universe. So um, the word Dvitiya, Prabhupada, grammatically can be two things, and Prabhupada does both, he does one in, this, in the, in the uh, word for word. Uh, and then he translates it the other way in the translation. So Dvitiya means second, the ordinal number second, like first, second, third. And Advitiya means without a second. And so Sisriksaya and then Advitiya. Anyway, we'll go into all the rules of Sanskrit grammar, but suffice it to say, it can be in Sanskrit Advitiya or Advitiya with a second, in which case it refers to Yoga Mayaya with a second participant which is yoga maya, or it can mean adhitiya, that Krishna does it without a second. However, since uh, yoga maya says that Krishna does it through yoga maya, the uh, translation with a second participant seems natural here in context. So, ekat soyam san jagatak sisiksya yatman, Krishna does it within himself, adhi, yoga maya uh, with his energy, and adi means above or over, so Krishna stands above his potency. So anyway, then the verse which is in the second person, directly addressing Krishna, srijasi, you create, adha, uh, the world, pasi, you maintain it or protect it or preserve it, punar, again, grasishasi, uh, which in Sanskrit is translated, you will wind up, literally means you will sort of like, you will swallow it, you will devour it, you will... Yeah, that's what it means. In the future, because obviously the universe is here right now, otherwise no one would be listening to this verse. So it's talking about a future event. This is the future tense. Grasisha see. Grasisha say. You will devour or wind up. The world, uh, yatha, just as Urnanabi, a uh, just as a spider, Bhagavan, O Lord Sushakti B, does that by its own energies. Bhagavan, by the way, the word Bhagavan here is an evocative. It's not Bhagavan, which would make it the subject of the sentence. It's Bhagavan, which is directly addressing the Lord. Maybe I will get caught then. Subtle distinction in the last vowel. I'm sure you all do. Bhagavan and Bhagavan, which means addressing the Lord. So, um, the idea here is that Krishna is an absolute truth. Prabhupada explains in the beginning of his introduction to the Bhagavatam that there is a vast difference between the concept of God, a supreme being, and an absolute truth. Because for example, right now, they're getting down to the end of the uh, college football season, which we know nothing about because we practice bhakti yoga. And so they have these, these rankings, they rank the teams. And so the number one team, whoever ends up being the national champion, will be the supreme team, but it's not absolute. If you put all the other teams on the field, you know, thousands of other players against the champion team, the champion team would be brutally defeated. So. The champion, you can be supreme, 
which means the highest. In fact, here's a translation of supreme from a dictionary. Uh, holding authority or office superior to all others, strongest, most important, or most powerful. So you could be the number one ranked living being in, in, in the conception of God, but you may not be an absolute truth. For example, there are many dualistic theories going back to the Gnostics and uh, Manichaeans, even the Aztecs had this type of dualism kind of a, uh, an awful form of it. But anyway, here the idea is that there is a God, but God is not absolute. There's also a, so to speak, a, an evil deity. And God, the good God, is fighting against the bad God. And uh, in their wisdom, the Aztecs thought, in order to strengthen the good God, the God of the sun, we should uh, march a lot of people up to the top of the pyramids, cut their hearts out, uh, and... Yes, therefore I said awful. But anyway, but the idea was that they're trying to empower the good God. So uh, this has been one strategy to solve what in philosophy is called the problem of evil, which is if there is a God who is good, if there's an all-good God, why is there so much bad in the world? So one historical answer which is not exactly correct, but one way that people have answered this question is by saying that there is a God and God is good, but God isn't all-powerful. In fact, there was one uh, fairly modern version of this wrong answer uh, given there was a book that came out, I think, in the 70s called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Remember that? Those who are mature among us, not old, but mature. We remember that. So why bad things happen to good people? It's written by a rabbi who concluded that, yes, there is a God, and God is good, but God is not all-powerful. He's doing the best he can, uh, but that's the best he can do, because the forces of evil are also very strong. So if we have a God who's not all-powerful, it's not really a God with a capital G. It's sort of just a supreme being but not the being who particularly is worthy of our deepest uh, respect. Because let's say someone's a doctor, and but the doctor can't cure your disease, so why bother? You know, the doctor can't cure your disease. Then many people think, well, the best I can do is a recreational drug or something. So. So similarly, if God can't actually protect you, which according to this theory he cannot, then why bother? Why bother devoting yourself to someone who can't actually help you? So that's one way uh, around this problem. Um, since, but again, since this verse is insisting, in fact, many verses in this section are insisting that God is and Krishna is an absolute truth, not merely a supreme being, uh, I will perhaps take on this challenge, which is also called theodicy, the problem of evil from the Greek words uh, theos, which means, uh, which means God, and uh, decay, which in Greek means justice. So theodicy means, the, is there justice in God? Does God have the power or the will to ensure that there is perfect justice in the universe? 
And among atheists, everyone boo and his, okay, among atheists, um, that's practically their main argument. Because otherwise, there is no argument against God because the atheist doesn't know. If someone's an atheist, they don't know. They just don't believe it, but the fact they don't believe it doesn't mean it's true. We can believe lots of things that aren't true. And since it's actually inconceivable how you prove there's no God, because what would you do? How can you prove that there are no unicorns in the universe? <laughs> I mean, you don't have access to the whole universe. And so to say that there are no unicorns in the universe, that is my belief. <laughs> Next. It's just not interesting. It's just you're telling us something which, so what? So you don't believe it. You can't prove it. So proving non-existence, especially proving the non-existence of something which is not material, and thus, by definition, not within the range of your senses, is um, absurd. How are you going to prove something that's beyond your perception, or the absence of it? Of course, people, they will try to turn that argument around and say, well, you can't prove there is a God because it's beyond your perception. But, not really. Because uh, in our system, which is consistent, which is coherent, and that's one of the standard uh, epistemological methods of showing the validity or at least the uh, significance showing that a particular philosophy or at least is a good candidate is showing that it's internally coherent if there are internal contradictions it's not even a candidate so we teach that by nature as souls not bodies we have the intrinsic power to perceive god under favorable conditions Favorable conditions being we're not envious of God at all. So since we do have that intrinsic power, according to our understanding, therefore it is not correct to say it is beyond our power to see God. However, if someone says there's no eternal soul, there's no God, then they are postulating a worldview in which there is no power to see beyond the material. And therefore, within that philosophy, uh, it is necessarily the case that you cannot prove the non-existence of God, or you can't prove there is God in that world. But within ours, it's different. Anyway, so any questions on that so far? A little bit of philosophy before breakfast. If it doesn't give you a headache. If it does, you can't sue me because you came to the class. So, if there are no questions on this, uh, then I will go on to the point of the Odyssey, or the problem of evil. Since Krishna, or Kardamamuni here, is claiming what Krishna also claims in the Gita and also in the Bhagavatam, uh, that he is the absolute truth. Uh, I do have a question. Is there any way to uh, diminish? Um, it's on the roof. Oh. Here. He can't wait a few minutes? Was it necessary to fix it immediately? No, he did yesterday, but we didn't hear him. I don't know. It's the shadow of his that's auspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you had a question? Um, yeah, you referenced Prabhupada's first kind of report about yes. God and the And uh, I'd just like to hear a little more about that. When I, cause I about what? About the difference between God and the absolute truth. Okay. Is that way, uh, I mean, I, I present how God is, it just means controller. I think that's what Prabhupada says. 
But when you get to the absolute truth, I think the way Prabhupada says it, it means it's the ultimate source of all energy. Yes. So maybe you can... Well, that's it. It's the ultimate source. And, and, but it's actually... Uh, actually, it's more than just the source, because something could be a source that would actually also be compatible with the deistic philosophy. Deism means that um, God originally, you know, sets the ball rolling, gets you know, hits the on switch, but then one God, once God creates the world, he kind of goes and has other things to do. And therefore God doesn't really participate in his creation, it's just literally a source. Just like you can go to a store, let's say, and buy a soccer ball. I read your mind. You can go to a store and buy a soccer ball and then go and play soccer, and once you pay for the ball and uh, walk out of the store, assuming it works, you don't have to take it back, you have nothing more to do with the store. The store has nothing to do with the soccer game. And that's why the Bhagavatam and Vedanta say that, that the absolute truth is actually Janmadi Asya, Janma Adi, Jan birth, etc. So in Sanskrit, the word Adi means the origin, or first, or original, as an Adi Purusha. But it's also used very, very frequently in Sanskrit as the equivalent of our word, etc. And so it's attached to the other word, like Janma Adi, Janmadi, to mean the group of things, a well-known group, of which, in, or in which, Janma is the first member. So it's a group. Anyway, in Sanskrit it's a well-known so in, so in Sanskrit, Janmadi, Janma Adi means a group whose first member, Adi, is Janma. So the well-known group whose first member is Adi is birth, maintenance, and destruction. So therefore, Janmadi actually means uh, the origin, uh, that supreme being who gives birth to the universe, who maintains it, and finally withdraws it. That's what Karnam is saying. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, exactly, that's what Karnam is saying. Is it appropriate to bring in, I, I like to bring in Radha sometimes, because people think God is just a kind of real concept, so then I bring in Patria Filio. You don't know that? The old Catholic thing, father and son. No women, did you ever notice that? It's a, it's a, it's a men's club. <laughs> father, son, Holy Ghost. I won't go to that. Is so that useful in, in talking about the What's that? Is that useful in talking about the absolute truth as opposed to God? Well, no, not necessarily, because you could have a divine couple who are not an absolute truth. So the, the, the fact that Krishna is, uh, you know, actually the absolute truth, the fact that God is a, a male-female com combination, divine couple, that in itself doesn't mean that they are an absolute truth. They are, but not because they're a couple. It shows the completeness of this understanding of the absolute truth because it would be it would be kind of a dull spiritual world if you know if, if it wasn't about Krishna. Okay. So it shows the completeness of the conception, but it doesn't show that 
it's an absolute truth in itself. So, uh, how about the uh, Nagita 9, 4, and 5? That's more like the yeah. 9? Oh, oh, Mayata Tamiyam Saram. Jagaravyakta Murti Namachdani Sarvutani. Yeah, it does suggest an absolute truth. It does suggest. Right. But one could say, for example, that Krishna begins that in that verse saying, Mayatatam Nidansaram, I pervade this entire world. But one could say, what about other worlds? Or you could say, Krishna Mayatam Nidansaram, all of this. I pervade all of this. In Sanskrit, this is sort of philosophical shorthand for uh, meaning this material world. Because in Sanskrit, uh, just like, you know, Spanish or any of those Latin languages, there's the word like this, that, and the one over there farther. Like in Spanish, it would be esto, eso, y aquello. Can you know Spanish? Yeah, honk if you know Spanish. So, and also, of course, in Korsky, it's the same. So, esto, eso, y aquello. So, they have that also in Sanskrit. So, idam is this, and tat is that. And then a cell or a dub is that one there, I mean, a farther one. So, this, just the word this, in Sanskrit, the neutral word this, comes to mean just the world that you can actually see. The world that you can actually see, in other words, the world you're in right now. So you have to go to that first verse of the Bhagavatam to really get the package, the absolute truth, right? Uh, yeah, the first verse in the Bhagavatam explains that, and then throughout the Bhagavatam it's explained even more elaborately. It's explained even more elaborately. Okay. Yes? Is, uh, I hear on the message forms about Oh, uh, you hear a message somewhere online. Yeah, that's where. Saguna Sad, Sanskrit means with, near means without. Like nirvana, without vana. So, Saguna means that God, in his ultimate form or his ultimate state, has qualities, such as his six opulences and so on. And, and Nirguna Brahman means the absolute truth ultimately has no qualities. So, um, here the word guna does not mean the three modes of nature, it's just the general word guna, which means quality. And it also often means, like in English, a good quality. You can say someone has a mixture of qualities, or you can just say, this, he's a quality person, or this is a quality bicycle, which means good quality. So it's exactly the same in Sanskrit. Guna can be a sort of a neutral word, meaning any quality, good or bad, but it also often means a good quality. So saguna, with qualities, meaning, like this, like Krishna, God is beautiful, the absolute truth is kind, the absolute truth has, a, has an eternal form. Of course, if you take the Nirguna Brahma conception, ultimately, philosophically, it makes no sense, because why would a Nirguna, a qualityless, absolute, create a world with so many qualities. Why would that happen? If the, if the absolute truth is one, where do all the living beings come from? And then, they never really answered this, even personally, so they come up with this kind of a silly answer that, well, it's just an illusion, uh, and actually their, their individuality is an illusion. The problem with that is that we believe that illusion. So who is it that's believing the illusion? 
we know. It's just like Descartes said, you know, Rene, that cogito ergo sum. Uh, Descartes said that, um, well, he, in the 1600s, he was a great scientist, a philosopher, one of the great minds of his century. And um, he performed this thought experiment, which was pretty bold in his time, because he lived in a time, especially he lived in uh, France, which was uh, heavily Catholic, I mean, you could say violently Catholic, basically because in the previous century, the uh, king of France sort of slaughtered everyone that didn't feel called to be a Catholic. Because that was, those, that was during the days of the Protestant Reformation and all that. So it wasn't, France was sort of involuntarily a Catholic nation. And, um, although some people would have been Catholics voluntarily, but not nearly as many as were, because people decided they'd rather stay alive and maybe be Catholic. So, um, he performed a thought experiment. He thought, well, what if I doubt everything that I think I know, like everything, even the world, I doubt everything that I think I know. And because this was kind of a bold philosophical experiment in his time, if you look at the preface to his book, The Meditations, he goes out of his way to assure the... Uh, the theological powers that be, which were actually the faculty of the Sorbonne. The Sorbonne in Paris was a Catholic university at that point, and so he goes out of his way to tell the people, basically, that have the power to you know, have him burned at the stake. He says that, uh, actually, we all know that the real truth is everything the Catholic Church says. However, there are some people who are so ridiculous and foolish, they don't believe it. So therefore, my book is not for intelligent people who are all Catholics, but uh, it's for those foolish people who, who don't believe in the Catholic revelation. Whether Descartes really believed this or not, you will never know unless anyone here actually can channel him. <laughs> okay, is that allowed in Bogotan? <laughs> channel old philosophers. Anyway, so, but he did put that in the preface to his book to stay out of trouble. And uh, so, but then he says, okay, I'm doubting everything. Is there anything at all that I cannot reasonably doubt? If I doubt it, I'm just being foolish. And he, he finds something that he can't doubt. That is, I can't doubt that I exist because I'm thinking. And if I didn't exist, how could I even be thinking about this? So he expressed this with the famous phrase or sentence, Cogito ergo sum. If you know Spanish, or cog like cognition, cogito means I think, ergo, therefore sum, which in Spanish is soy, therefore I exist, I am. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And then he builds, he kind of, you know, rescues a lot, the rest of reality, like the fact that he's a soul, and there's a God, he builds on that, that's the foundation, he starts to make arguments based on that. So therefore, um, the fact that we exist as persons, as individual persons, we actually know that more certainly than we know anything else. And so therefore, to say, well, maybe you don't exist, no. We know we exist. We know we are individual persons. 
In fact, we know it more clearly than we know anything else because everything else we know, we only know because we are persons. And therefore, to say that the absolute truth has no qualities, uh, which means we don't because in our ultimate spiritual state, we're supposed to be like the source of our existence. So the impersonal argument that, well, there really is only one thing, which is the absolute truth, impersonal Brahman, but now uh, you can't even say we falsely think we're persons because we don't exist, right? There's only one thing. Brahman. It's really bad philosophy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, when you really start talking about it, it's like, seriously? Are you really, do you really believe that? It makes no sense at all, and hence it's not very popular. Some people say they're impersonalists, but just step on their blue suede shoes and see what happens. I mean, just offend them in some way and watch how their individual self rushes back to the surface. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a serious idea. It's just kind of word games as opposed to a serious description of what we know to be life. Yes? So people think that um, the impersonalists think that you're not no, we don't exist. We don't exist. So therefore, it's like the, the idea that, that I am... I couldn't wait a few minutes. Sorry. We've been waiting for four months. Oh, he's, a, oh, he's an outside... Yeah. Oh, he's not a devotee we can intimidate. Oh, I see. We could immediately baptize him and then interview him. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to explain what they think. It's so counterintuitive, it's so ultimately absurd, but I'll try my best. You know, it's like you, there is no you. And so right now, there's an illusion which almost, although you are experiencing the illusion because you think you're a person, somehow. You're not a person and you're not really experiencing an illusion because God cannot be an illusion. That's not the best I can do. It, it's really absurd. It contradicts itself all over the place. And it's just a miracle of the material world that anyone could take it seriously. Yes. Well, no, there is... There is a Nirguna Brahman, which is the Brahma Jyoti. There is an impersonal existence. It just doesn't create the world. It's not, it's just, it's just this field of spiritual energy. That's why the impersonalists always say you can't describe it in words. It's true, because you cannot reasonably describe in words something which is unreasonable nonsense. I cannot reasonably describe in words a square circle, because there is no such thing. So the main reason you can't describe something in words is that it's ridiculous. It's absurd, it contradicts itself, and that's why you can't describe it in words. There is an impersonal Brahman. It just does not account for the creation, and it does not explain why we are the way we are. It's funny, actually even mundane scholars, academics have pointed out the silliness because... Uh, I remember I was reading when I was preparing to give my course on the history of India and 
religion at the University of Florida, I used one book, it was the history of Indian philosophy, and it said that, ironically, the impersonalists who say you can't describe the truth in words wrote more books than anyone else. You know, they, they used millions of words to explain that you cannot explain with words. Actually, this, this silly contradiction, even when I was young, er, and I was uh, a student at the University of California, Berkeley, in the late 60s, and I, I took a course in German literature, in translation, if we didn't read it in German. And uh, I was a comparative literature major at that time. So um, the teacher was this nice young guy from Germany. You're reading Siddhartha, that book Siddhartha. And the teacher was sort of laughing at the book because Siddhartha says, he says on, on page whatever, you know, he's, he's, he, he, he states that you cannot describe the truth, and he describes this fact that you cannot describe the truth on this page and that page. And so he was just laughing at this book, which keeps using words to say that you can't use words. And as we know, there is a standard method of philosophical discernment, which is called, in fact, in the Latin, via negativa, which you can understand from Spanish, the negative way. Via negativa, which means that if you explain everything that something isn't, what's left is the truth. And so, uh, but still, if you say, but, but, but if you say that you cannot describe it in words, I guess the point I'm making is, even though it's a negative statement, it's still a description. If you say that the truth cannot be described in words, that is still a description of the truth. And it is still a description with words. So, I am using words to describe a feature of something that cannot be described in words. That is called, in plain English, a contradiction. It's a statement which, if it's true, is not true. And a statement which, if it's true, is not true, is nonsense. So therefore, the statement that you cannot describe the truth in words, which is a description in words of the truth, is just, it's just silliness. It's not a serious statement. Why does Krishna, in the second chapter, use that way? Why does Krishna what? Use, use to be a negative in 2.23 through 2.25. So let me look at my Gita. Unless, is there a Gita in the house? My GBC zone for a Gita. My kingdom for a Gita. <laughs> <laughs> so, you said 2.23? 2.23 and 24.25. Okay. First, you should tell me what prizes I can win. <laughs> we should have we should have a game show format like one of the devotees smiles and points to all the prizes. <laughs> and then you ask me questions. We should do that sometime. Maybe we should be able to win valuable prizes. Like samosas and brascolas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 223. Yes, that... Um, Weapons do not cut it or him. Talking about the soul. Uh, fire does not burn it. 
water does not moisten or dissolve it, and the wind does not sort of dry it up. Yes, this is a, a via negative, exactly. And, and again, you're right, the next verse is achedyoyam, this soul. As you know, Krishna's talking about the soul because I am is a masculine pronoun referring to Atma, which is a masculine word. So this soul is uh, indivisible, uh, cannot, unburnable, literally, undissolvable, un, can't be dried up. Yeah, those are all negative definitions, but Krishna, the whole point of the Bhagavad Gita is that you can describe the absolute truth with words. Because Gita, the very word Gita, means words. It's not an instrumental. All those great old surfing instrumentals in the 60s. If you don't know those songs, then uh, I really feel sorry for you. So, <laughs> so why does Krishna use that way for Arjuna? What's, what's the strategy there? Well, the strategy is very simple. You have to know what something is and what it isn't. Just like when you make an initiation vow, I will do this, I won't do that. So a complete description always says what something is and what it isn't. Because if you simply say what something is, it always, it, 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 there's always a logical possibility that could also be something else that you didn't mention. So you have to say it's this and nothing more, but nothing is a negative word. So positive description without a negative adjunct generally cannot be a complete description. Because you say something is this, but it could be something else also. So you have to rule out the possibility that it's some other thing which contradicts what it is. It's, it's also a way of being emphatic that uh, uh, I will stay home, I will not go to your party, for example. Real world question of example. <laughs> so, you know, when you say something positively and then negatively, then it really nails it down, so to speak. Yeah, that's the Isopanasha, Tadejati, which interestingly is a neuter. That truth. And Krishna also uses the neuter to describe himself in the 13th chapter of the Gita. A lot of the 13th chapter of the Gita, where Krishna is describing the super soul, is, Sanskrit, is grammatically in the neuter, like it or that. Why does he do that? Uh, because you can talk about it as the truth. For example, we can say that uh, it is not that, or, or it is that. That is what it is. Like Krishna is personal, and that, we can, we can say that is the fact, or that is, uh, or, or you can say that truth. For example, you could say, uh, we chant the names of the truth. The truth is not a masculine word in English. Unlike other languages, many other languages, English is not a gendered language. Oh my God, imagine the political correctness if it was. It's unimaginable. So, um, but we can say in English, for example, uh, we are dedicated to the truth. The truth is not a matter, I mean the word he or him or dedicated to him or, or to, that's a gendered word. Pronouns are gendered in English. But not regular nouns. And so, if we say we are seeking the truth, that's a neuter expression. It's like an English neuter 
um, maybe you can speak some more about theodicy because justifying the ways of God. Oh my God, you're, you're, okay, you better let me go because <laughs> I know you are as serious as I am about a punishable breakfast. <laughs> and so I'll just say a few words. I don't want to lose your goodwill by <laughs> delaying your breakfast. So, um, Theodicy, is God just? Is God fair? Or does God have the power to ensure justice? So I begin with a general statement. What would have to be the case? In order for us to say that someone is a perfect moral agent, again, the word agent doesn't mean someone that sells you, you know, car insurance or something. Agent in philosophy means someone who has uh, the consciousness and the will to engage in intentional activities and therefore to be responsible for what they do. So in order for a Christian to be accepted as a perfect moral agent, in order for anyone to be a perfect moral agent, uh, start with the general definition, it would have to be the case that if that person causes, intentionally causes pain or suffering to another conscious being, that that pain or suffering is caused to, as, as the least invasive way of bringing about a necessary good. In other words, for example, let's say you go to the dentist, and the dentist says we have to do a procedure. Now, if the dentist is doing the procedure because the dentist uh, has some bills to pay, and the procedure is going to be painful, then it, the dentist is not acting morally. The dentist is causing you pain for his or her own selfish purpose. So if the dentist says to you that we have to do this procedure, you expect, you assume, if the agent, if the dentist is not crazy, is, you know, is a good person, the agent, that first of all, the procedure is necessary, it's not optional, well, it's not just like aesthetic, well, you know, you'll look better, but therefore I'm going to tie you down and force you to, no, it's, it has to be something which is really necessary to bring about an essential good, like your oral health. Like something really bad will happen if you don't do this procedure. And, so it's necessary, and the dentist will do it in the least painful way possible. If the dentist does not meet those two requirements, the dentist is not acting as a perfect moral agent. So, if you look at the suffering of the world, you would have to ask the simple question. First of all, is that suffering necessary to bring about an essential good? And secondly, is the suffering the least possible to bring about that good? In other words, it would not be possible to bring about that essential good with a less painful procedure, in this case, karmic reaction. If the answer to both those questions is yes, then, despite all the suffering in the world, God, as the controller, is still acting as a perfect moral agent. And that's why the problem of evil has never, I mean, no serious philosopher would call it a proof. It's just, well, here's one way to look at it. But you can't prove that. How will you prove? Because, for example, because there's a third factor, and that is free will. Let's say you go and rob a bank, and you're caught, and therefore you have to pay a $10 fine. 
your obvious conclusion would be, wow, I found my calling. Bank robbery. <laughs> For example, when I was uh, a, when I was younger, when I was a freshman at Berkeley and I lived in a dormitory, and uh, this just kind of seemed absurd to me because I, I was really meant to be a member of the Hare Krishna cult. And, um, and therefore, when I was in college, it just really, it really seemed absurd. And they had all these little rules. They even elected dorm officers who did little... So anyway, the whole thing just struck me. I, I mean, now, in retrospect, I have a much kinder evaluation. But because... I didn't know the purpose of life. I didn't know who I was. And I knew they didn't know. I thought, like, why are you guys getting so interested in all these trivial things when you don't even know the big things? But anyway, I'm a little more charitable now. In my so uh, I got in trouble because I don't know. I broke some rule. I mean, it didn't hurt anybody. I didn't really, but I just did it just because I thought it was so absurd. So they, uh, I won't tell you what I did, <clears throat> which is incompatible with the uh, extraordinary reverence you do for me. But anyway, I did, I did kind of some silly thing, broke a rule, and I wouldn't follow their command to desist. And you know, they couldn't physically stop me. And so they had a special meeting, and I think they imposed <coughs> on me a $5 fine, which I didn't pay. And so, so the point I'm making is the punishment. The punishment was so trivial that I, it did not act as a deterrent. <laughs> and so, because we're dealing with subtle bodies, and the fact that someone commits an evil act is because they've got some real garbage in their head. You know, perhaps at a very deep level. They have a twisted, deep psychology. And so... The punishment has to be sufficient to efficiently communicate to the person the evil or, the, or what they've done. It's like uh, it's like that you know famous Bob Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone. How does it feel? You know that song? Yes. Yes. If you don't know that song, hang your head in shame. Anyway, so. The idea of that song is, you know, once upon a time you dressed so fine, you threw the bums a dime in your prime, like a very sort of proud, arrogant young lady who then is sort of forced to develop empathy by becoming a member of that group that she so looked down upon. But, but the idea here is that, is, okay. that, is that she did develop empathy hopefully. And so the punishment has to be sufficient to actually root out the disease and create the type of empathy which is a, a, a characteristic of and even a precondition of spiritual consciousness and spiritual health. So, yes? Some of the punishments listed in the fifth canon seem greater than the crime in my mind. And the one that yeah, comes to mind is embracing the hot iron man or woman when there's two willing parties. Yeah, you know, should consensual so it, illicit sex be punished by extreme torture? Um, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Bhaktivinoda Thakur actually writes about this and suggests that that's, those are not literal. That's not really what happens. 
I've been asking this question for like 25 years, and you're the first one to tell me that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura. And we're really glad you're here I in will general. I will, I will beat any confirmed offer. Anyway, for spiritual guidance. So, so just, to, just to follow up on you, just follow up on that. Um, it's like, for example, when I was young, I had really good parents. I, I, was, I mean, they weren't devotees, but they were very, very loving parents. And so uh, my father, I guess he learned from his father something. Whenever we, you know, he wanted to threaten us or scare us into compliance, he would say, I'm going to take off my belt. Like he, like, he never actually, sometimes, you know, he actually would half take off his belt and we would start laughing because he would say, hey, your pants are going to fall down. Because <laughs> we, because we knew, I mean, he was a very kind person. We knew he was never actually going to hit us. And so he would say that I would take off. Did you ever hear that? Some people do that. Yeah, no, I, there was no, there was no, yeah. I, I was very fortunate the parents I had. So, uh, so it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Or some, I know in England, they used to have this, parents would tell children that if you go out of your house dirty, the evil spirits will capture you and take you away. So the kids would never go out of the house until they cleaned up. And so, yeah, so. I, I blooped because of that. Really? For 12 years. Because yeah, because of the fifth cano. I'm like, that's not my God that does that. I would say if everything else fails, uh, try a different hermeneutic. <laughs> I mean, hermeneutics <laughs> means like how do you approach certain statements in the scripture? Like, because we know, we know from Prabhupada that certain statements are literal, certain statements are allegorical. Narayamuni tells an allegorical story, he declares it to be an allegory. The Chaitanya Charitamrita says there are certain illusory stories in the, in, in, in the, in the Bhagavatam, which are just meant to teach a point. So we have people. Thank you so much. He said that it's just it's sort of an exaggerated statement, just to kind of get yeah get people's attention so they will not do it. Yes. Um, this story seems to be similar, but in a scientific way. Um, you seem to be somewhat of a spiritual scientist, and uh, let's see, it might be no more different than just that uh, the Vedic science is totally different from Western or modern science. Um, but I was wondering if you had anything to say about the Bhagavad Gita and then Krishna says that of the stars I am the moon and then in the purport it says that the sun is one and that the um, stars that we know as suns in modern science are actually um, moons and planets yeah reflection of the one sun and that okay so first of all Krishna's, doesn't Krishna say nakshatra namaham shashi yeah. okay so let's see what the word nakshatra means because we can't do this with English translations. Let's see. Please specify. Oh, wait. Oh! Sanskrit word. Okay, I put it in the wrong box here. Okay, nakshatra. A star or any heavenly body. Any heavenly body. An asterism or constellation through which the moon passes, a lunar mansion. So Krishna, so Krishna, what Krishna is saying is of lunar mansions, in other words, of moon mansions, I'm the moon. This is not an astronomical 
he's not this is he's not talking about stars in the modern astronomical sense. What the purport saying that the star is the sun is one. Is that saying that there's the only sun one? Sun is one. Yeah, however, Prabhupada taught us a hermeneutic principle, which is that a spiritual master speaks infallibly when citing Shastra and not when not citing Shastra. And so the commentaries of Acharyas uh, are taken to be absolute when they cite uh, Shastra. Therefore, for example, it's common that on certain details, this is a detail, you know, whether, you know, the nakshatra, whether it's, it's a star in the modern astronomical sense or simply a lunar mansion, that is not Siddhanta. Siddhanta, the word Siddhanta, which means the perfect conclusion, it refers to uh, philosophical conclusions. For example, you're an eternal soul. That's Siddhanta. That Krishna is God is Siddhanta. That Krishna's the original form of God is Siddhanta. There's a law of karma operating in the universe is Siddhanta. Uh, a, an astronomical detail is not Siddhanta. And so Prabhupada said that the greatest Vaishnava philosopher is uh, Jiva Goswami, who wrote a book on epistemology called the Tattva Sandarva. And he explains in his book that, you know, Shastras and Charis are authoritative on these philosophical conclusions. And Prabhupada taught us, repeatedly, that a pure devotee is not materially infallible or, uh, or omniscient. And so therefore, I mean, there are many devotees who think that we should accept Prabhupada as authority on every topic except one. The one topic on which Prabhupada is not an authority is Prabhupada himself. So we should ignore or bypass Prabhupada's own clear self-description and substitute a better description, namely someone who is materially infallible and omniscient. And Prabhupada said to Jayadweta Swami that if you think a pure devotee is materially omniscient or infallible, you don't understand our philosophy. You don't understand what it means to be a pure devotee. So it's logically impossible. Logically, it's just like, logically impossible is a technical term. Right? It's logically impossible that there is a square circle in this room. It's logically, if you know what the word square means, what the word circle means, it's, it, it just can't be. Because, because the term square circle doesn't mean anything. So if you're saying it could be a, but those, since those words don't mean anything, there's no thing that, that could be there. So in the same way, Prabhupada says that I'm not infallible, or I, Prabhupada said I make mistakes. He said that many times. On material, not on spiritual things. Yeah, like uh, Mr. Toyota's daughter signed, or, or claimed to be Mr. Toyota's daughter, and it wasn't. Yeah. He said, I'm, yeah, yeah, and Prabhupada used to quote the Aquarian Gospel, which it turns out was written, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, <laughs> by some guy who was just writing a book. Yeah. So, so if you think everything Prabhupada said is true, you don't believe everything Prabhupada said because if you say everything Prabhupada said is true, but he said I make mistakes. But see, so if you say Prabhupada doesn't make mistakes. You don't believe everything Prabhupada said. If you say that everything Prabhupada said is correct, even sort of, you know, basically insignificant material details, 
then you don't believe everything Prabhupada said. Because you don't believe him when he says, I make mistakes. And we know, like Prabhupada would say, turn right, but it was left. Or, or he would say, I mean, these, are, these things have nothing to do with being a bona fide spiritual master. They have nothing to do with being a liberated soul. They're totally irrelevant to it. It is not a qualification to be a liberated, pure devotee that you be materially infallible because that would be God. And so it's a type of impersonalism which people like to try to sneak in the back door. And, and so generally the justification of this is also an impersonal idea. Well, everything Prabhupada said was actually Krishna speaking. And Krishna doesn't make mistakes. If that were true, and then what it would mean then is that the more you advance in Krishna consciousness, the less you are a person. It would mean that actually we know absolutely nothing about Prabhupada. We never heard Prabhupada say anything that was actually Prabhupada speaking because it was just Krishna. Just sort of almost like, you know, in those seances or sort of like, you know, ghost possessions that Krishna was just using Prabhupada's body. So we never saw Prabhupada do or say anything. We only saw Krishna using Prabhupada's body. And therefore, the more you become a pure devotee, the less you're a person. So, so what it is, it, it, it's kind of imposing on the relationship between God and his pure devotee, the Brahma Vimohana Leela. Just when, when Brahma tried to bewilder Krishna by taking his cows, his calves and coward boys, then Krishna personally took the form of the calves and coward boys. In other words, it was really just Krishna. And that's not Prabhupada. Prabhupada's a real person. Just like among Krishna's wives, you have Satyabhama, who's very fiery and always talks back to Krishna, and then you have Rukmini, who's more humble. And so, according to this theory of the infallible Prabhupada, actually Rukmini is not is not uh, sort of timid, and uh, Satyabhama is not fiery. It's just Krishna being fiery and timid with himself using their bodies, which is absurd and destroys the whole philosophy of, of bhakti and is ultimately impersonalism. We're not really persons. We're just, uh, it's actually the Maya body idea that the more we think we are individual persons and the more we act with our own free will, then the more we're an illusion and the more we uh, surrender our free will to Krishna and, you know, I have nothing to say, I have nothing to do, you speak and act through me. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's not our philosophy. Well, I think it's important to know so that we can help like modern thinkers not to like, turn away from the movement. Because absolutely. Like and, and, yes, absolutely. We have to know our philosophy. When Prabhupada... So, uh, regarding the definite, for example, Prabhupada uh, in a purport in the Gita says the hottest months of the year are May and June, which is true uh, in India, before the monsoon. In, on the west coast of this country, the hottest months of the year are, in fact, you can look this up, August and September. And in the southern hemisphere, those are two of the coldest months of the year, May and June. So, Prabhupada says in the second canto of the description of the Rupa, the universal form, 
that the universal form is displayed for sort of primitive people who are very attached to the material world and therefore they need to see some sort of uh, super material show like the universal form to have faith. So I would say people who are still attached to this world need a pure devotee to be a material superman. Like in order to have faith in Prabhupada, Prabhupada has to be, you know, have you know, materially omniscient, materially infallible. I personally don't need that because I know that Prabhupada is a pure devotee. I know that he came from the spiritual. He actually told me that personally, privately. Prabhupada actually told me uh, that he was never in illusion. He told me that privately. So I know who Prabhupada is, and you know whether he is an expert in earthly meteorology, I don't really care that much. Or whether he's up to date with the latest astronomy is irrelevant to me. To me, Prabhupada is a pure soul who will bring me to the spiritual world. I don't need him to be an astronomer. are there um, oh. in back of you. I thought that um, thank you because they're going to go quick to other programs so some of the devotees already bought I have an envelope there um, so if anyone wants to get a book from me. Okay so you know, uh, please buy my book and uh, enrich me and uh, yeah ten dollars.